Welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations, a series of short and shareable conversation starters for those of us who have or love and support people with a complicated and beautiful brain. Here's your host, Angela Geddes. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Kitchen Table Conversations. Today, we're going to circle around the opportunity to allow people to make informed decisions. So we're going to start with talking about the new alcohol guidelines just briefly, um, again, in an opportunity for people to know the health risks. So, uh, you know, there's been a lot on the news lately talking about these guidelines that now recommend no more than two drinks per week, um, essentially, which, uh, and the, the, you know, the evidence is pretty clear that alcohol doesn't really serve us much of a, of a health purpose. And there are quite a few health risks associated with alcohol consumption. You know, I don't think that alcohol is going to go away anywhere soon, but I do think that it's really hopeful and promising to see things like dry February and a lot of the competitions that we see on social media and also the um, the development of more non-alcoholic options and mocktails and that kind of thing to allow people a choice, which I think is really, really, really important. And again, this is about choice and making informed decisions. And I guess it's one thing to talk about making informed decisions for yourself and the consequences that would be personal in nature. But then there's also um, a responsibility, especially when we're talking about the well-being of a developing baby. So, you know, the message still kind of remains unclear around so many risks associated with pregnancy. But I do think these guidelines will help draw attention to that, and the conversation will continue to lead towards prevention, which is a really good thing. So again, though, there is some pushback, um, and there always is, and I've heard it many times where people kind of see the, um, the language and the messaging around pregnancy and reducing alcohol use for young women, um, and a lot of people see that as paternalistic, and I just really, really strongly disagree. I mean, this is just the truth, and so it is really important for young women in particular to understand that if you, if there is a chance of a pregnancy or if you're planning a pregnancy, then alcohol shouldn't be consumed. So that means that if we're not using protection then there is a possibility of pregnancy and we really need to be mindful that it's not just us that's going to have the consequence of alcohol uh, use, it's going to be our little people and that's a big deal. There is no doubt that I have a bit of a bias here because I work every single day um, with individuals who are impacted by alcohol and I see how hard um, people do struggle and I, and it's hard for me to watch people struggle um, and and what I've said before many times is is FASD is everywhere. It's not just reserved for people who really struggle with alcohol um, addiction and uh, mental health conditions. So, for example, just last week I walked into a store and just began having a conversation with the store owner um, about what I do for a living and where I'm working and what my kind of passion is, that kind of thing, and. Um, and then the conversation continued around personal family dynamics that this individual was experiencing and was talking about his child, um, his adolescent, who was making some really impulsive decisions, even to the point where he was just decided at 16 he was going to leave the home and uh, without a job, without finishing his education, without a really safe place to live. And this was really, really puzzling to the individual that I was talking to. And he continued to talk about sort of lifelong curiosities around behavior and development development 
but nothing that was really obvious, but it was just puzzling and parenting was really hard for him and the family dynamics were really struggling. And, and then, you know, the conversation continued to evolve and we understood that there was an adoption involved and that the mother really did, the, the biological parents did struggle with um, addictions of many kinds, including alcohol. So again, you know, we haven't done an assessment, but these are really puzzling behaviors. And these parents, although I don't know this person very well at all, uh, I can tell that there's care, there's concern, there's um you know, typical parenting strategies were utilized over the years without success. And this was really, really problematic. And this was like, these parents were worried like 100% of the time and really feeling like they've done this child wrong. So we discussed this a little further and I continued to offer a little bit of support. And of course, I suggested further investigation and that if um, the family reconnects and they're able to get him to, um, you know, a physician or a developmental specialist, that we always, you know, make sure that we talk about the role that alcohol or um, other drugs might have played in terms of of this person's development. But what remains puzzling to me and, and kind of frustrating sometimes is that, you know, it's me in a casual conversation in a store that was able to recognize that there's something really curious about this whole dynamic and that we need to understand more. But nobody, including family doctors or teachers or um, mental health providers that have been involved in this family in, you know, throughout the history have ever even considered this. So there's a lot of prevention work that could have been done in those earlier years, which would have mitigated the risk of this kind of crisis situation and this young person being at real risk. I think it's really important for everyone to also understand that it's not just alcohol that can cause some of these difficulties. It's also marijuana, which is another significant risk to the developing baby, and as well as too much screen time, particularly in those years before two years two years of age. Um, you know that those kinds of things do affect um, development, particularly in the area of language development, memory visual perception, reading and concentration, impulsivity, uh, decision-making, hyperactivity, and problem-solving. Those kinds of things are really impacted by a lot of the things that we do in those really early years and certainly throughout pregnancy. It was very interesting for me and pretty alarming, actually, that I, I did a presentation for young students at Fanshawe College that were just transitioning from high school to to post-secondary and we were talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and the risks of alcohol use and the question came up around the use of marijuana and the majority of the, the group in this classroom really felt that marijuana was a healthy alternative to alcohol and did not recognize any risks at all um, both to themselves essentially, but certainly to the pregnancy. And this was really, really upsetting to many people. And they felt like one person in particular stated that she was never going to get pregnant if this was the case, because she couldn't imagine her life without having um, marijuana in it. So again, these are discussions that we do need to have around our kitchen tables. And I think for those of you who know me, you know that I remain very committed to helping people make informed decisions and to help reduce both the incidences and the impact of, of prenatal exposures and to do whatever we can to support healthy brain development throughout our um, our children's lives as well. And this is something that I remain incredibly passionate about because I do see so much opportunity and so much hope. And I do believe that it takes more of us discussing this kind of thing at our own kitchen tables. So let's do this.
Um, we hear so much about increased increased rates of attention deficit disorder and autism spectrum disorder. And I know from my personal experience working in assessment um, for young people that and older people that there are lots of people who are misdiagnosed and left with multiple diagnoses and many of them have had prenatal exposure to alcohol in their histories. So let's think about this for a minute. I know of situations, uh, again, even in my personal life, where there have been alcohol-exposed pregnancies, but people are not willing to further pursue or investigate this, but instead are left to accept or continue to be confused by multiple diagnoses, including such things as anxiety or depression, bipolar, or some personality disorders. PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, and now autism. And these multiple diagnoses can be very confusing and can lead people down a number of different paths. Um, And I really believe that we need to do better. And with so much information going on on the internet, I really encourage people to, instead of trying to find out for themselves what they might be struggling with, to really go to their their family doctor, go to a medical practitioner, and then pursue um, involvement with a psychologist that can do some standardized testing and can really understand how your brain is working and what kind of impacts mental health is having in your day-to-day functioning. Again, there are so many overlapping characteristics in mental health conditions of all kinds, and then it's particularly complex and confusing when we talk about um, more neurological conditions. And it is so important that we don't forget that FASD and prenatal alcohol exposure is the leading cause of developmental disabilities within our Western world. Currently, we have 1.8 million Canadians who would qualify for an FASD diagnosis. And this pre- these prevalence rates, I know I've said this before, but it's really important for everyone to share because the prevalence rates are higher than autism, cerebral palsy, Tourette syndrome, and Down syndrome combined. So, you know, I just, again, I find that um, this work is so meaningful because there is opportunity for real change. And some would say that any kind of publicity is good publicity, but I have to comment on, you know, the tendency for there to be such a stigma attached to um, mental health conditions, but certainly fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is why there's such a barrier to further understanding and why there's such a barrier to pursue this as a, as a possible diagnosis. And unfortunately, when it comes to FASD, there has been some pretty negative um, publicity. Uh, especially in the media, and I'm still pretty disgusted with the way that Saturday Night Live depicted fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in one of their skits, and I encourage you to kind of take a look, although I think it's been taken off of some of the the YouTube clips and what have you because it has been so um, stigmatizing and demoralizing. But to give a quick scenario or synopsis, it was, uh, you know, a, a person who was clearly struggling with a number of physiological and social difficulties and the parents were there sort of making fun of him and highlighting all of his areas of difficulty and how they were um, actually trying to hire somebody to be his prom date you know it was just it was pretty 
pretty terrible. And then just recently, um, I saw a notice on my LinkedIn account from um, Our Sacred Breath, which is a a person who continues to spread really interesting and positive and hopeful messages around um, FASD and in her efforts to prevent both the impact and the incidences of it. Um, But she shared a TikTok reel that was going viral and it was from a -a Build-A-Bear workshop experience where a woman indicated that, um, to quote her, was hands down the best trend right now is telling people that they look like they have fetal alcohol syndrome. And this to me is just, again, so horrendous and what a terrible statement. And I can't even imagine what it would be like for anyone um, that I support on a regular basis. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to actually hear those words or to see that people are dismissing a very real condition. And would anyone ever think about saying something like this um, to somebody who has Down syndrome? And no matter what the cause of the developmental disability is, um, to the person who's experiencing it, it's, it's, it's very real and it's not something that they can do anything about. They didn't cause this to happen. And they shouldn't be a punchline in somebody's joke. And once again, I think in this particular case, when we are talking about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, with the right information and the right supports, um, it can be prevented. I've been sharing this information for quite a few years, and I suppose the most frustrating part for me is that, and for people who are working in this field, is the fact that FASD is not a new phenomenon. People have known about... um, The risks associated with prenatal alcohol exposure as far back as biblical times and warnings were documented in early research journal articles, some dated back to the 1700s. So physicians knew that um, fetal development was impacted, um, but for whatever reason, the attempts to share this kind of information more broadly and certainly within medical practice has been uh, met with some resistance. So I guess I'm here to say that, or here to share, that I've worked with many moms and dads who have told me, who have cried and told me that had they known more about the risks associated with prenatal alcohol exposure, they would have made different decisions. And that will haunt them for a long time, even though we all know that people do not intentionally harm their growing babies. So this is why I often quote Maya Angelou. Um, And she says, do the best until you know better. And then when you know better, let's do better. So let's talk about a few things that maybe we should be investigating or curious about or maybe even concerned about that would prompt us to go to our family doctor and maybe ask for a referral to some developmental specialists, especially in those early years when things can be so subtle and manageable, but yet we're curious about them. So let's, when we, when we feel like something might not be right, I think as parents, we need to really act on that. And grandparents and community members, again, it takes a community to raise a child. But I think we should get more comfortable with asking questions and going to our doctors when our babies and toddlers are not sleeping well, for example, or maybe they're not eating well, maybe they have a gag reflex, or maybe they projectile vomit a little bit more than what you would expect. Um, maybe they become very easily agitated or frustrated or kind of go from zero to 60 really quickly. And the next thing you know, food is flying across the, the, the room. So, um, and maybe kids are refusing to sit um, and they just can't seem to concentrate or finish things. Uh, or maybe they're jumping from one activity to another and really getting upset quite easily when um, plans have to change. 
Um, and maybe they switch really, really quickly from being very happy one minute to being very sad. And sometimes we just, you know, assume people are faking it and turning on the tears. But sometimes these emotions are really real and they're really, really big. And that can be curious. And I think it really warrants further investigation. I also encourage people to use developmental screens and, you know, the Nipissing developmental screens, for example, there's a number of them that you can find. Consult with your physician and see what he or she thinks is best. Um, but tracking things like how many words little people should be speaking at a certain time frame and recognizing that developmental norms are quite broadly um, demonstrated. So, you know, these are just guidelines, but certainly um, when you go through these developmental screens, they give you an idea of what to continue to monitor and what to look for um, expertise and support with. I think it's important to be curious about inconsistent performance as well and how some days things are really easy and some days things are not. Um, those kinds of things are really important to investigate and to, to determine whether or not these limitations are developmental in nature. And then I think the earlier we know that, the better off we can intervene and we can shift our parenting strategies and our support strategies in a, uh, in, a, in a better way so that we can reach some of the goals that we want to get to and customize the learning process so that it meets the needs in a good way. So to highlight and to give an example of this, I was at a, a beach with a family and friends at a social event and there was a little person that was with me and we were building castles with the parent and building sand castles with the parent and this individual who was around two and a half was, you know, we started out building the castles and then he would just continue to break all of the castles that were being built around him, not just his own. So I was suggesting to him that, you know, this is your castle and you can build it and you can break it, but leave daddies and leave mummies and leave other people to build their own castle. And uh, the parent acknowledged that it was perfectly fine for this little person to crush his, his um, sandcastle and that kind of thing. But it wasn't that, you know, the message was not whether or not he could break the sandcastle. That was not the big deal. The message or the teaching and the opportunity there from my perspective was to help this little person develop a whole bunch of social skills, including empathy and the concept of cause and effect and the implications on other people in terms of our own behavior um, and to kind of help support impulse control and just those, those boundaries that we all need to learn and practice, and especially for those who have complicated and beautiful brains. So I hope you found this episode to be a little bit thought-provoking and that you feel that it would be important to bring this back to your kitchen table. With many thanks, Angela.